the world would look like if we all knew how to resolve conflict according to God's plan? Like, what world would look like if people could sit down, discuss, and resolve conflict? What would the Middle East look like? What would Washington, D.C. look like? What would your family look like? What would your friends look like, your circle? What would your marriage look like? I believe all those things are possible. Well, we are starting a new series today about relationships. And if you've been at STSA for a while, if you heard any of my sermons, you probably heard me tell a story or two about my relationships, about my wife, my kids, my parents. But here's a story that you probably haven't heard before. It was our first Christmas together as a married couple. We had just been married a few months. And like most couples, when they're first married on the first Christmas or first holidays, the discussion is where to spend the Christmas holiday. Your parents, my parents, a little bit of each, a little bit from here, a little bit of there. Well, we had the same discussion, but we made it easy for both of our families. We spent it with neither one of them. <laughs> we instead spent Christmas night, Christmas the, the evening, the dinner, at my priest's house. But not because we were sitting around a table sharing a meal, because we were down in his office trying to resolve a fight. And I remember very vividly, okay, the feeling that I had, and I'm sure that my wife, my lovely wife could say she probably shared the same feeling. She was annoyed and angry that we were missing her family, my family on Christmas. Like everyone loves Christmas and we're not able to spend it with either one. I'm frustrated because I just think this is something dumb that we should be able to resolve on our own. We don't need to be at our priest's house on Christmas. Our priest, God bless him, was very nice, but I'm sure he had better things to do on Christmas than spending with two people whose newlywed fight. But the bottom line, first Christmas together, we're not in a good place. And I remember how I felt that day. And I want to share you how I felt. And I think that my wife, okay, I'm only speaking for myself, I'm sure she would share the same sentiment as this, which is this. I looked at it and said, she see things her way but I see things the right way. <laughs> like this was as clear as day as could be. Like there was not a gray area here. There was the way she's looking at the situation and then the way, the right way. <laughs> and I remember, I couldn't understand for the life of me why we're stuck on something that's so obvious. I couldn't understand for the life of me why we're stuck on something that's so obvious. I couldn't understand why she doesn't just come around to my point of view, agree with what I'm saying, not because of me, but I'm saying it's clearly right and clearly wrong. Why can't we just get on the same page, agree, and let's just move on? But until she sees things the right way, we're stuck. And I'm sure you've been there before you're as well, right? Maybe some of you are there right now. That relationship that used to be but somehow just ever since, it's ever since that vacation or ever since that, ever since Thanksgiving, whatever happened at Thanksgiving, which she said and he said, or maybe it's just one of those things that we've just been slowly drifting apart and there's just some unspoken thing and, and it's like, it's clear that like they just need to see things the right way. And until they do, like we're just stuck right here. It ruined Thanksgiving, made an awkward Christmas, 
And it's just like, we're just destined to have like awkward family time forever and ever and ever. And then there's that wedding coming up where we're all going to be together and that's going to be so awkward. And why can't they just see things my way? Like until, watch this one, until she sees things my way, nothing will ever be okay. Why? It just seems like it's so simple to solve, but the other person just wants to be difficult. Now you may be saying to yourself, like, let me give you some examples. This could be your mother, for example. Okay, we just finished the holidays, so this may be your mother who has an opinion on everything in life. Or it could be a mother-in-law who has an opinion on everything in life. And as soon as they walk in the house, they start sharing those opinions. They have an opinion on what you should eat, what you shouldn't eat. They have an opinion if you're single, who you should date, who you should not date, when you should stop dating and go to the marriage. They have an opinion on what job you should take. They have an opinion on what, where you should live. And you're thinking to yourself like, stop, stop, stop. Someone tell them to just stop because until she sees things my way, we're just gonna be stuck and we can never have a close relationship. Father Anthony, my mother does this and my mother-in-law does this. Just tell her to stop. This could be a friend who you used to be close, like you guys were, were friends for so many years, but just, it was ever since that one event, like we all went out to dinner, and of course he'll say that, you know, you said this, and you'll say that he said this, but who knows really who said what? You each said something that you didn't, that, that could have affected the other person, and ever since then, it's just been a little bit awkward. Ever since then, it's just been a little bit uncomfortable every time you're together, and you're just waiting for him to just see things the right way, which happens to coincide with my way, and until then, we can't move on. Maybe it's someone here in the church right now. And maybe it's someone who, come on, let's be honest. You know that they didn't invite you on purpose. There was that group event. We all saw the pictures on the Facebook and we all saw what happened. And somehow your invite must have got lost in the, 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 the internet mail. Okay. And ever since then, something's been wrong. We're starting a new series today called Relationship Hacks, and we're going to talk about how to repair broken relationships, because as I'm going to keep repeating over and over, starting relationships is easy, fixing them is not. But let me tell you what the title of this series is not, because I wrestled with this one. The title of this series is not How to Get Other People to See Things Your Way, which happens to be the right way, because that would be a great series, wouldn't it? Like that would be like people lined up at the door. And some of you are thinking like, that would be the series, how to get people to see things your way. Like some of you are like, man, finally, that's one I, that, that, finally something practical from up here on the stage. That's what we need. But that's not what we're gonna be here to talk about. Because so many people come to me and you've come to me and you've come to your friends and say, how do I get this person to see that they are wrong? Like, how do I, just give me, like, what is it can I do? How do I get my wife to see that she complains too much and she just needs to stop? How do I get my husband to see that he's just the most critical person on the planet and just, just go easy? How do I get my kids to stop whining? How do I get my parents off my back? How do I get my friends to realize they're wrong? How do I get the other person to see their error and come around to my way, which just happens to be the right way? Here's our key thought for this series. And like I said, I'm gonna repeat it over and over. Starting relationships is easy, but fixing them isn't. Starting relationships is easy, but fixing them isn't. Starting relationships is intuitive. It's something that we naturally know how to do. You don't need to take a class in it. Fixing them, I believe, is a learned skill. Think about it like an automobile. Buying a car, easy. Maintaining a car, pretty easy. They give you a little schedule, just check on the box, especially if you're willing to pay at the dealer, they take care of it all for you. Anyone can own a car, 
Okay, especially these days, no money down, no money in the bank, no job, no nothing. As long as you show up and you're breathing, you're willing to sign away the next 30 years of your life to whatever interest rate, you can have a car by the end of today. But what happens when something goes wrong with that car? What happens when something is making that noise or there's a little rattle? Then all of a sudden it's like, well, do I do this? Do I need to do that? Do I just do this and hope it goes okay? Do I just turn up the radio, make it like, oh, I, nowadays we have YouTube, right? So YouTube will kind of help and making maybe guess, but you better hope that you're diagnosing it. Like YouTube can tell you how to solve a problem, but it can't tell you how to diagnose that problem. So you're kind of guessing. So what a lot of us do with cars is we say, you know what? Buying is easy. Fixing is hard. Just replace it. Hence the lease came into existence. Okay. Okay. You don't need to rent or to buy. They came up with a lease, which no one really knows what that means. It's somehow buying, but you got to give it back in the end. So I don't really know what a lease means, but it's basically this, which is, I don't know how to repair it, but I know how to get a new one. So let's just do that. And I think we kind of do the same with the relationships sometimes. We know how to start them. Starting is easy. Anybody can meet somebody and start and superficial and get to this acquaintance level. And then somehow it gets hard at some point. And it's not just, listen carefully to this. It's not just that it's hard. I believe that it's not intuitive. I actually believe that our natural inclination is usually the opposite of what repairs relationship. Our natural inclination actually makes things worse. So what happens in that situation is we're tempted do just like we do with the car. Just get a new one. There's plenty out there to choose from. And in case you're wondering if this is something that like, this is something that the world deals with, like the non-Christians. Christian people don't deal with this because we're spiritual, we pray. Let me show you, this applies just as much to spiritual and Christian people as it does to non-Christian people. St. Paul, one of the greats in Christian history, someone who was more influential than anyone on this planet, maybe other than Jesus Christ himself, wrote half of the New Testament, great missionary. But St. Paul at times struggled relationally. We're gonna look at a passage right now from Acts chapter 15. And at the time, St. Paul is on a road trip, a business trip, we can say, a missionary trip with his BFF at the time, which is Barnabas. And Barnabas was, in case you don't know the story, Paul, when he started, was anti-Christian. He hated the Christians. He persecuted the Christians. And then all of a sudden, Christ appeared to him. He said, I actually want to become one of them. And he went to the apostles and they're like, no, thank you, sir. You killed many of our friends. We don't want anything to do with you. And then some guy named Barnabas stood up and said, I'll take him under my wing. I, 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 I'll, take, I'll coach him up. He's with me. He's my responsibility. So St. Paul owes everything he's got to Barnabas because Barnabas stuck his neck out on the line for him. But there came a point in time where Barnabas and Paul had a little spat together. Acts chapter 15, pick it up in verse 36. It says, then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now, Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. You see a little tiff right here, a little spat. They're on this trip together. They're preaching the gospel. They're starting churches. They're like, they're like fire and ice together. They're the perfect combination. And then all of a sudden they're like, okay, let's go to that city. And Barnabas is like, okay, let's bring Mark. And St. Paul's like, I don't want him to come. And he's like, well, why? And he's like, I don't like him. Why don't you like him? 
because he was unreliable then. And I don't think we should take a chance on him. And then Barnabas is like, but we took a chance on you. And you're thinking to yourself like, okay, like everyone, like cooler heads, like everybody relax, like y'all are spiritual people. Like you can do the, the whole prayer thing that you tell everyone else to just say a prayer, okay? Then everything should be okay. Like this is easily solvable. This is easily solvable. They can figure this one out, right? Next verse. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And when the scripture tells us they parted from one another, we know from the tradition of the church, they parted and never saw each other ever again. They never got past this. This was the it. This was it for Batman and Robin. This was the end of the line right here. This disagreement about Mark coming or not coming. And it broke them apart. Even men of God, even spiritual giants, struggle with relationships because not only is it hard but like i said it is counterintuitive our natural inclination when there is a, a a break in the relationship our natural inclination is to do the exact opposite of that which will bring it together i'm going to give you two examples i'm going to give you two simple examples easy examples that you can see that sometimes the very thing that we think we use to try to solve the problem, like we're grabbing the wrong tool. Something is broken and we grab the exact wrong tool. I wanna give you two examples that I guarantee you've heard and has been said to you and you know how you feel. And I will bet that most of us have said it as well in an attempt to repair a relationship. The first one sounds on the surface, benign and easygoing, but you know if you've been on the receiving end of it, you know something doesn't sit right with you. And that is this. I'm sorry if I offended you. You've heard that before. I'm sorry if I offended you. This is like the classic, this is the textbook for, I don't know, I'm sure celebrities, but I see it like in the world of athletes. They do something foolish and then, okay, I'm sorry if I offended you. Regardless of the intention of the person saying this, what are they communicating right here? I'm sorry if I offended you. That if bothers me. Why? Because what they're communicating is, look, I didn't do anything wrong. Any normal person wouldn't be offended by it. But if you happen to be a weirdo, if you happen to be so sensitive, if you happen to have serious issues and you were offended by it, then I'm sorry. So translate this is, you're too easily offended. Problem is with you. I didn't say anything bad. I didn't do anything wrong, but again, if you are weak and if you are sensitive and you're that emotional, then you know what? I apologize. Congratulations to you. Luckily for you, I'm a very big man. I apologize. You're welcome. And this would usually not have a good response and it would lead to the second statement, which I know you've heard this before. I said, I'm sorry. Why are you still upset? Now look, some of you right here, I'm about to save your marriage. <laughs> like this is worth the price of admission by itself right here. I said, I'm sorry. Why are you still upset? Translation, I did my part. What's your problem? I did my part. I said, I'm sorry. I did what the preacher guy said I'm supposed to say. Like I did everything I'm supposed to you. If things aren't back to normal, that's on you. 
That's on you because you know what? I did everything I was supposed to. We should be back to the way it was before I insulted your sister. We should be back to the way it was before I criticized you in front of your friends. We should be back to the way it was before I did whatever it is that you were upset at me. I said, I'm sorry. Why are you still upset? Do you see what I'm saying? Is that we as human beings, it's not that we don't want to fix relationships. It's not that we don't want to repair it. But I just think it's not intuitive. I think it's hard to do but I don't even think it's an issue of like, can we do it? It's hard. I think it's, we naturally, our natural response is the wrong thing. And that's where this series comes in. My hope in this series is to help you see what may be standing in the way between you and a fixed relationship. What may be, what, what may be the problem? And I know what you're thinking. What's standing in the way is her. <laughs> What's standing in the way is him. Him seeing things the wrong way. And I, I get it. Like, I get it. I've been there. I've told you I was there on Christmas. But what I want to say is maybe, maybe it might be you. Maybe there's something on your end. Like, maybe that it's not just out the window we need to look. Maybe it's in the mirror we need to look. And our theme verse is going to come from Romans chapter 12, verse 18, which says this. Let's read this all together because this is, I want, I want us to memorize this verse. Read it all together with me. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. The goal of this series is that as much as depends on you, as much as depends on you, that's going to be our theme. You can't control everything because not everything depends on you, but a lot does depend on you. And even if it's 90% the other person's fault and they did and they did and they did, I don't know what they did and I don't care what they did. I'm asking you, as much as depends on you, as much as depends on you, we each have to do our part. It will always be easier to blame the other person versus to examine ourselves. That's the easy thing to do. He did, she did, they're no good. That's easy. Anybody can do it. The one who has the strength, the stronger one, that's the one who can look at themselves and examine themselves and as much as depends on you, move towards a situation of peace. What we're gonna do in this series is every week, we're gonna look at what I believe is one obstacle to relational health. One thing, one thing that stands in our way, and we're gonna look at one practice. Each week is just gonna be one thing, so it's not gonna be overwhelming. For the next four weeks, today's kind of an intro, but for the next four weeks, we're gonna look at one obstacle that stands in our way, one thing that we naturally, like I said, the counterintuitive that we go to this. And we're gonna look at one practice. You're gonna walk away from this series with four practices that you can practice, four actions that you can practice on a regular basis, hopefully give us better relational health. Today, just laying the foundation. Today, I wanna to start by giving two relational principles that encompass everything there is to, for the rest of this series. Now, off, right off the bat, I'm gonna give you these two principles and they're going to seem contradictory to one another. I get that, but just stick with me. We'll go one at a time and I'll show you how they're not contradictory at all. The first principle based on this verse is what's our definition of success? Success isn't reconciliation. Success is no regrets. Success isn't reconciliation. Success is no regrets. As I said, Repairing broken relationships isn't easy and it's not intuitive. It's a learned skill. Now the problem for most of us, you may be the exception, but the problem for most people is it was never taught to you. And more importantly, it was never modeled for you. 
In fact, probably what was modeled was the exact opposite. We all had an example when we were younger. And this isn't criticized, this is all of us. Did you ever have an example when you were younger of your parents and they were like best friends with this other family? Like best friends, maybe not best friends, but like close intimate friends and gatherings after church on Sunday and sometimes holidays together. And we would go out to, to, to events and the kids came over here and we used to watch each other's kids and we'd take care of each other's dogs. And remember this, we used to get each other's mail. Do you remember when that was a thing? Like, we, can you get my mail while I'm on vacation? Like that was a thing. We had each other's spare keys. Like we were close. And then all of a sudden, things just got weird. And our parents didn't tell us what happened. But we, like, we're not dumb. Something just got weird. All of a sudden, we stopped hanging out on church after Sundays. Like, we would hang out with this group, but we stopped inviting them. And that was kind of weird. And it was always like, they're busy. Okay. And then it was like, okay, we're going to this event. And somehow it always worked out that we were leaving as soon as they were coming. And that was like weird, but like, you know, you're a kid, you don't care. And then, and then we'd say like, hey, let's invite, you know, little Joey or little Susie to come over and play. And your parents were like, no. Um, and it was always these weird excuses. And then you figured it out. You heard the story about what she said or what he did or who didn't invite who or who didn't say hi to who or who didn't invite who to kid's wedding, whatever it may be. And you thought to yourself like, this is silly. Like y'all are adults. Just fix it. Just talk to him. Pick up the phone. Say, I'm sorry. Like, what's the problem I hear? Like, this is silly. And you thought this was just the dumbest thing. But what you learned, what you learned is the wrong thing to do in that situation. You learned to not pick up the phone and call. You learned to not say, I'm sorry. You learned that they need to say they're sorry. You learn how to dig your heels in. You learn the Holy Trinity, the Holy Trinity of relationship destruction, which is bury, avoid, pretend. Bury, avoid, and pretend. Any feelings you got, bury them in deep. Don't ever let them come out. You see the other person, avoid them like the plague. Avoid even the eye contact. And you know how you like, oh, uh, I, didn't, I didn't see you right there. Okay, like, oh, hey, you know what I mean? Like, avoid like the plague. And if you do happen to see them, you pretend. You pretend that everything is okay. You pretend that there's absolutely no problem. You know, you do the, and like, oh, and then watch this one. The, oh, we should get together sometime. How many times did the event end with, we should get together sometime, and nobody ever picked up the phone or did anything? You, like me, learn that when the relationship is broken, you picked up all the wrong tools, all the wrong tools. <clears throat> but then what happens next? What happens next is somebody gets sick. Somebody goes to the hospital. Somebody, there's a funeral. And then what happens? Then all of a sudden, the two people, now it's an emotionally charged environment. And now all of a sudden, the things that were such a big deal before aren't such a big deal anymore. And it's like, oh yeah, that's silly. And what happens next? I know this is, this, is, this is easy, but follow me right here. I want you to say it in your head. What happens next? What is the next thing that you see your parents doing or you see the other person doing? They do exactly what they should have done before. Exactly what they should have done before. They should have said sorry before, they didn't. Now in the hospital, I'm sorry. 
Now at the funeral, at the wake, I'm sorry. They should have walked across the room and started a conversation. They didn't. But now in this situation, when again, we're talking accidents, we're talking life or death, they walk across the room. They start the conversation. And they did what they should have done before. And sometimes this fixes it. But sometimes it doesn't. Especially if the person, the problem is the one that were there for the funeral for them. Obviously, it doesn't fix it for them. Sometimes it doesn't fix it. Sometimes it's too deep. But either way, whether the problem gets fixed or not fixed, I believe what you, the sense, the feeling that both people feel at that point in time is a feeling of overwhelming regret. And that's why I said, you've heard me say this before, my goal in life, my goal in life in every aspect is no regrets. I'm not perfect and I don't expect to be perfect, but my goal is to get to the very end. I've seen people at the end Regret, regret is the worst feeling, the worst emotion as you near the end of your life. And nobody wants that. Now somehow doesn't bother us because we're young and we're, but I'm telling you, if there's a regret that can be avoided, it's worth it. Proverbs chapter three, verse 27 says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. That's why, like I said earlier, the goal isn't reconciliation. And I know that sounds counterintuitive. Because in a minute, I'm going to tell you why the goal is reconciliation. But what I'm saying is the win. I get to the end of my life. The win is not that I restored every relationship with every person. That would be great. We pray for that. We do our best. But that's not in my control. Because a relationship is not like, like a printer. Okay, if a relationship was a printer, you got all the parts in front of you. You tweak the thing. You order new whatever. You fix it. It's all in your control. But a relationship is two people. And you only control 50% of the people in that relationship. So you know what? There'll be times where you can't reconcile. There'll be times where you can't repair. There'll be times where you know what? The thing just has to be broken for the rest of its life. But listen carefully. If that happens, it's not going to be on me. It's not going to be because I didn't do my part. It's not going to be because I didn't walk across the room. I may have walked across the room and I was not reciprocated. No regrets. I want, when all is said and done, I know I won't have peace with every single person, but I want to know, and I want to know in front of God, not in front of people, in front of God, that I did the best that I could, that as much as depends on me, and if it was reciprocated, great, but if not, not on me. I opened the door. I put out the welcome mat, removed all the bridges. I said, come one, come all. I was open. I was willing. They didn't walk. That's on them. We pray for that. We do our best, but in the end, The goal is no regrets. Now, that's the first principle. Goal is no regrets. The goal is not to reconcile every relationship. Well, the goal is to reconcile every relationship, but I'm saying the measure of success is not whether the person responds. The measure of success is whether you did your part. That's the first principle. Now I'm going to move to the second one. But before I move to the second one, I want to go back to that example that I just gave you about the people who didn't want to talk to each other and our parents, whatever it may be. In the previous example where the person didn't say sorry till the very end or where the person was sick, and in your example, actually forget about the previous, in your example, where you're waiting for them to say sorry and they're waiting for you to say sorry. You're waiting for them to pick up the phone and they're waiting for you to pick up the phone. Answer me this question. Why is it that you are waiting for the other person to do it? Why is it you're waiting for them to take the first step? And I already know the answer in your head. 
The answer is very clear. Because it's their fault. That's what everyone would say. I'm waiting on them because it's their fault. I'm in this room over here and I'm huffing and puffing. She's in that room over there huffing and puffing. She needs to realize it's her fault and come over here and apologize. And he's saying the same thing. It's their fault. They need to apologize. That's what everyone would say, right? Because they're at fault. You're right. They're wrong. Everyone agree with me? They're wrong. You're right. They should go first. You know what? I'll agree with you. They're wrong. They're at fault. But who said the person's at fault is supposed to go first? Parents, if you had a five-year-old and a 15-year-old and they got into a fight and they weren't talking to each other, who should go first? A 15-year-old, why? Because he's more mature. Like this is, like didn't we all, like especially if you're the oldest child in the family, okay, you hated this, that it was your responsibility because little junior doesn't know what he's doing. Okay, and little junior, he's young. And little junior is whatever. So you're 15, he's five, go apologize. Because you are the better person, right? You're the better person. I think in your relationship that needs repair, I think you should go first. I think you should, I think, I think you should go first. You know why? Because I think you're the better person. I think you're the more mature person. And you know why I know that to be true? Because I heard your story, your story, your version of what happened. And you're the better person. That's according to your story. Your narrative is that they're horrible people. And they did, and they did, and they did. Okay. So you're the better person. So therefore, you should go first. Congratulations. You're the more mature person. And that gets us to our second principle. Our second principle, watch me here. Forgiveness isn't enough. I must strive for reconciliation. And again, I know this sounds counter to what I just said a minute ago, but stick with me here. Forgiveness isn't enough. I must strive for reconciliation. Now, earlier I said success is not reconciliation, and I'm sticking by that, that you can't control whether you get there. But what I'm saying is I can't stop trying until I get there. I may not get there, but it's not going to be I did my part. I may never get there, but I'm always going to be striving for it because that ultimately is where I need to get to. If you had to take Christianity and dumb it down to one word, what is Christianity all about? What does it mean that Christ came to this earth? It's not forgiveness. It's reconciliation. And reconciliation, forgiveness is part of it, but it's so much more. Reconciliation means that something was broken and it's been fixed. That two people were separate and they've been united together. That's Christ's ministry in a nutshell. Not just, okay, I forgive you. Forgiveness, just so you know, is easier than reconciliation, right? It's easy to stand here and say, okay, I forgive her. I don't want to see her face ever again, but I forgive her. That's easy. And some of us, if we're honest, some of us, that's kind of a cop out for us. We're kind of going with it. Well, I forgave them. Okay, forgive is good. But Christianity boils down to not just God saying, okay, I forgave them. Get them out of my face. I forgive them. But I forgive them in order to reconcile with them. Let me show you this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 to 21. Now all things are of God. Watch how many times he says the word reconcile. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, 
not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be, say with me, be reconciled to God. Watch this verse. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is more than forgive. This, this is more than forgive. Forgive is, okay, I'm not going to punish you. I let it go. That's not this. This is, I forgive. I come to you. I take the first step. Actually, I take the first like 10 steps. I see what's the problem. I do all the sacrifice on my end to repair the relationship. This is why for us, okay, when we look at an orthodox view of like the sacraments, especially that passage in John chapter three, we talks about being born again. We talk about baptism. What is baptism for? Why do we baptize little babies and because they need forgiveness of sin? They're like a, a week old. They haven't done anything wrong. Because baptism, the sacraments are not just about forgiveness of sin. That's part of it. But there's more to it. It's about unity and about intimacy. I'll give you another example. Think of the sacraments that are connected to two sides of the same coin. And I wish that we can restore this view of this sacrament. I know we don't today as much as we should. But communion and confession are two sides of the same coin. That we go to confession on Saturday so that we can come to communion on Sunday. Because that's how it works. It's not just we come and he says, okay, I forgive you. That's the first half. He says, I forgive you, and now I unite with you in the sacrament of communion. It's not just about forgiveness. It's about reconciliation. You know why we like forgiveness more than reconciliation? Forgiveness, I control it. All the cards are in my hand. You're over there, and I can say, okay, you get a forgiveness card. You get a forgiveness card. You, I'll make you work for a little bit, okay? But in the end, I give you, and it's all in my control. Reconciliation? Reconciliation's messy. Reconciliation's uncomfortable. Reconciliation involves risk. I have to open myself up to the other person. I have to bring up some of those, remember the bury, avoid, pretend? I have to bring some of that stuff up, and I could get rejected. And the person could laugh in my face. And the person may, who hurt me a little, could end up hurting me a lot more. But isn't that what Christ did? Didn't Christ have to roll up his sleeves? Didn't Christ have to walk across the room? Didn't Christ have to risk rejection with every one of us? But that's our calling. It's not just forgiveness. Too many of us are hiding behind forgiveness. Too many of us are saying we did our part because we forgave. And yes, while I agree, that sometimes reconciliation is unsafe and sometimes it is unwise. I admit that and I say that and there's no problem there. But let's be honest, that's the exception, not the rule. And too many of us are hiding behind that as like, yeah, because you know, no, that's the exception, not the rule. The rule is reconciliation. I'll give you another passage from St. Paul, Colossians chapter one, verse 19. It says, for it pleased the father that in him all the full all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself. That's the goal, people, to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things are heaven, having made peace 
through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated, meaning you who the relationship was broken, you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. St. Paul got it. St. Paul, who again, as I said earlier, was the worst of the worst before he became a Christian. He gets it. He gets it that the goal isn't for God to say, okay, I forgive you, leave me alone. I forgive you, I don't want to talk to you ever again. I forgive you, but don't come near me at Thanksgiving. That's not the goal. That's the first step. Forgiveness was step one to open the door, to remove the barrier, to be able to reconcile. Because that is our calling as children of God. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's where we're going in this series. I apologize for the false advertising. You thought you were going to come here and I was going to give you 10 rules to get other people to see things your way. I'll work on that for the next series. But I think our calling right now is much greater. I think our calling right now is to be more like Jesus. And Jesus didn't come to make us see things his way, the right way. Jesus didn't come to say, okay, you're over there, I'm over here. Clearly, I'm right because I'm Jesus. You, come on over here. Jesus came down, rolled up his sleeves, got his hands dirty, and he reconciled us to himself. And now he calls us to do the same thing. <clears throat> One more time, can we read this together? Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. I want to finish by reminding you of a parable that Jesus told. I'm sure you've heard it before. Whether you read the Bible or not, you remember this from Sunday school. Parable of the lost sheep. Remember this story? Once upon a time, there was a shepherd. He had a hundred sheep. One of those sheep wandered away. And we all know, what did the shepherd do when the sheep wandered away? He left the 99 and went out and looked for him. Very nice story. Let's make that personal and practical for us. Let's say you got a hundred relationships and one of them wanders away. One of those relationships goes over there. You got 99 is looking good. One of them wandered over there. What would you say? What would be your response? You'd say, rogue sheep. Rebel sheep. I'm batting 99 out of 100. One guy, clearly it's his fault. And you would say to yourself, I welcome, I'm a good Christian, so I forgive the sheep. I forgive him. I forgive the sheep for wandering off. And if that sheep wants to come back, welcome him with open arms. He knows where to find me. There's 99 of us, can't be that hard. But is that what Jesus said? What did Jesus say? He says, the one shepherd leaves the 99 sheep and goes for the one that was lost. He tries to reconcile. And he has to look. He's got to run far. And he goes in dangerous situations. And he goes after that one sheep. And he does whatever is in his power, even risking danger and even risking rejection. He does whatever it is in his power. Now, ultimately, he can't control the sheep coming back or not. But he does everything in his power to reconcile with that sheep. The Pharisees, who are like the bad guys in the Bible, this annoyed them. If you look at the Pharisees, what annoyed them the most was exactly this principle. They didn't have a problem with Jesus forgiving people. Their problem was Jesus going out of his way to reconcile with them. So like Jesus like would like go to their parties. Like, why do you do that? 
Jesus would like go hang out at pools of sick people who they believe sick were cursed by God for whatever the sin that they did. Like Jesus, why you do that? Like Jesus, get with the program. Here's the program. We're religious. You want to be like us? This is how it works. You stay right here in the synagogue and in the temple. You preach the truth. You want to preach forgiveness? Go ahead. You want to preach love? No problem. But you stay here. You preach the truth. And if somebody messes up and somebody sins and somebody walks away and they come back, we forgive them. And they want to be restored to this and they walk, no problem. But stop going after them. Stop going to their parties. Stop going to their homes. You're ruining the whole thing for the rest of us. Get with the program. If they apologize and they come back, accept them. But till then, we stay here, we do our thing, and we avoid them. Sorry to say it. Which of those two sounds more like you? You sound more like Jesus in the story or more like the Pharisees? You're the one doing the going after and the chasing and the reconciling? Or you're the one waiting for an apology, digging those heels in, saying, I'll forgive them if they come back. I'll forgive them once they realize they're wrong. Jesus came, his whole ministry was reconciliation. His whole ministry was a broken relationship that he came to repair. His whole ministry was going out of his way, risking rejection, rolling up his sleeves to do that which we were unable to do on our own because he was the better person. And if we're going to be his followers, if we're going to take Christianity seriously, like read the Bible, very important. Say your prayers, very important. Go to church, very important. But come on, if we're going to do all that, we're going to ignore this whole area of relationships and reconciliation. First John chapter 3, verse 16. Everyone knows John 3, 16. It's like the most famous verse in Christianity about how God so loved the world that he gave himself for us. We love that. But first John 3, 16 tells us kind of like the next step. And the two are connected. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Can't have one without the other. We love that he laid down his life for us. We love that he loved us so much that he came to save us. We love that. But then the next, the flip, the other side of the coin, the heads and the tails, is that we ought to love our brethren enough to give our lives for them. And I'm telling you, some of us aren't even willing to pick up the phone for our brethren. And today that has to change. Next week, we're going to start with the first obstacle. But before we get to next week, you have a homework assignment very simple homework assignment. It's to answer one question, sort of. The question that I want you to answer between now and next week is this. What's stopping me from trying? Now, before you answer, before you answer, I'm actually going to change the question. I'm going to challenge you to do this. I'm going to challenge you in whatever relationship is broken, ask yourself what's stopping me from trying and you automatically come up with an answer. And I'm going to challenge you to take that answer, the first thing that popped in your mind, write it down on a piece of paper, Put the piece of paper on the side and then answer the question this. What's stopping me from trying really? I know what I say. I know what I convince myself. I know the narrative that I've preached over and over, but come on, really, what's stopping me from trying? We're going to pick up the story there next week.
We're going to start talking about the obstacles, but the starting point is to realize this is who Christ is. This is who his ministry, and if we're his followers, we need to be honest. What is it that's stopping us from fulfilling that, fulfilling that mission? And then next week, we'll start to learn some of the tools that will help us to get there. Let's stand together for a prayer. <clears throat> In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you came to earth to reconcile us to you, we who are not worthy, Lord. We did everything wrong, you did everything right, but you came out of your way to reconcile with us. I pray that you would help us to have that same spirit, to make you proud as your disciples and your followers and follow in the same footsteps with this ministry of reconciliation. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, the prayers of all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.